I wonder if the name Ebenezer Scrooge means anything to you. It might not. But if you are, uh, if you if you grew up in the English speaking world, any place in the English speaking world, the name Ebenezer Scrooge is a famous name. One of the most famous stories ever written in the English language is the story in which Ebenezer Scrooge is the main character. If you call someone a Scrooge in England or Australia or America, everyone knows what you mean. That guy, what a Scrooge. And what you mean is not anything good. What you mean is something like a bitter, grasping, in fact, the word Scrooge, uh, the guy who wrote the story, got the word from a word that was popular at the time that meant squeeze. And it means somebody who's hanging on to his stuff. This story, it's called A Christmas Carol. It's written by Charles Dickens. And in this story, Scrooge is a bitter, tight, greedy old man who's mean to the people he works for. And at the beginning of the story, some guys show up in his office because it's Christmas. It's actually Christmas Eve, and he's working, and he's making his clerk work. And he questions his clerk about his clerk needing Christmas Day off. He calls it robbery. <laughs> well, Scrooge is this tight, tight, greedy old man who refuses the celebration of Christmas. These guys show up in his office, and they're looking for a charitable contribution to help the needy people in the, in the city. And Scrooge sends them away and not in a friendly way. One Christmas Eve, that very Christmas Eve, Scrooge is visited by a series of ghosts who show him the consequence of refusing to participate in Christmas. And in the end, Scrooge is transformed. He's transformed into the fullest participant in Christmas. Nobody does Christmas like Scrooge at the end of the story. He embraces Christmas. He becomes cheerful and lavish in his generosity. It's possible to miss it, but Dickens' story 
A Christmas Carol, is a story of a certain type of resurrection. Here's the first sentence in the story. The first sentence in the story is, Marley was dead to begin with. It's a simple declaration that Marley, who is Scrooge's partner, was, until he died, is dead. Somebody is dead. It's just stated flatly like that. Marley is dead. The last sentence of the story is a famous line. In fact, I could probably ask anyone who grew up in any of those English-speaking countries to tell me the last line of the story A Christmas Carol, and they could probably quote it. It goes like this. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. That's the end of the story. It goes from this cold, dead thing to this happy, life-celebrating, God bless us, everyone. Christmas changes everything. Christmas changes everything. It doesn't do it by visiting ghosts, but it changes everything. It's not just the celebration of the holiday that changes things. It's not just all of us trying to enter into the spirit of Christmas, imitating God's generosity. It's not just that. There's more to it than that. Something Charles Dickens missed in his story. And that missing element is found in our text for today from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through Him, that is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. All the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. That's a pretty categorical statement. In fact, one way this statement is translated is, However many promises God has made, in Christ they are all yes. If you ask the question, how does God keep His promises? Well, that's an important question. How does God keep His promises? It turns out there's only one answer to that question, and that is in Jesus Christ. Christ. Christmas changes everything. 
in James, we read this sentence, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or even a shadow of change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. And in this context, I think you'd have to read the word of truth with a capital letter the name of Jesus Christ. How did He bring us forth? By the Word, the living Word, Jesus. And how did He do it? Of His own will. He promised and He delivered on His promise in Christ. The transforming power of Christmas is not in us deciding to become good, cheerful, and generous people, though that's a recommended course of action. I think it would be nice if you were a little more good, cheerful, and generous. And you'd probably think it would be nice if I was a little more good, cheerful, and generous. But we, Christmas does not transform us in some personal commitment we make to these friendly values. It is about God who set out to do something, something good, cheerful, and generous, and has fulfilled that promise and will fulfill that promise in Jesus Christ, His Son. We become good, cheerful, and generous people because God has acted in Christ to redeem us, to reconcile us to Himself and to each other in Christ. So I thought, since all the promises of God are yes in Christ, it would be nice to review some of the main promises God has made and to see how they are connected to Christ and fulfilled in Christ in the text of the Bible. Of course, there's a lot of promises God makes. I think it's a good idea when we're looking at the promises God makes to consider who He made the promise to. Not all of the promises are directed to me personally. But whatever promise He has made, He has fulfilled in Christ. Everything. So let's look at some of these promises. The first one is in the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we read this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God, in this case, we might ask, who's he making this promise to? Well, I'd say he's making it to himself. He's talking to himself. He's having a conversation, I I personally believe among the three persons of the Trinity. And he says, let us, let us make man in our image. Well, 
since God is promising to himself to make man in humanity, us, in his own image, this also constitutes a promise to us. We will do this, he says. We determine to do this. Oh, in our image, after our likeness. And those two words reflect two directions of relations. One, in, in the likeness of God, reflects the, the relation between humanity and God himself. And the other, image of God, ref, reflects the, uh, the, uh, that likeness in our relation to the others the other people and the world around us. And so he says, and let them have dominion, let them rule. So in, the, in this ruling over the earth, we reflect God's ruling nature. Now I read that and I think, oh, we have that, that promise. Let them have dominion over the fish, birds, livestock, all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I'm not sure that promise has been completely fulfilled just yet, except in Christ. In Christ, who one day was in a boat when a storm arose. The storm arose and he was asleep. And the storm arose, and he continued to sleep. His disciples, who were experienced guys on boats, they had a lot of experience. They'd seen these storms, and they knew it was not a good idea to be where they were when that storm came up. And so they were panicked, to put it nicely. They shook him awake and said, do you not care that we are dying here? And you know what the first thing out of his mouth was? Oh, you of little faith. He didn't go, he didn't join the panic. Why? The second thing <laughs> out of his mouth was, Peace, be still. And he wasn't talking to the disciples. But in Christ, this promise is fully realized. He has total dominion over the earth, over the created world. And he says, enough storm, and the storm ceased. This promise is fulfilled in Christ, and it will be fulfilled in us in Christ. John chapter 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He goes on in that chapter, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Who is the image of God in humanity? Christ. We've seen His glory. 
glory as of the only Son. And I think John is at least remembering, if not referring directly to his experience at the Mount of Transfiguration when Christ's glory was unveiled and John was present. And here is a human being, Jesus, that is full in his bearing of the image of God. The glory as of the only Son. In Colossians chapter 1, we read, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, the preeminent one of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. For Him it means for Him the man Jesus. Because God created the universe, the world, the, the natural order, the physical material world in which we live, he created that for us. It was created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Jesus is the image of God in man. Jesus is the fulfillment <clears throat> of that Genesis 1 promise, let us make man in our image. And in Him, we will realize the fulfillment of that promise as well. In Hebrews chapter 1, we read this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. There is nothing you need to know or that can be known about God that is not revealed and visible in the man Jesus. What an amazing thing that God Almighty, the second person of the eternal Trinity, can be not just dress Himself up in, but can be a human being. He doesn't just put on a man's suit. He is a man. I think maybe there's more to being human than we notice. He is the fulfillment of that promise from Genesis chapter 1. He goes on in Hebrews. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Well, that sounds like exercising dominion over the natural world. And after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we read, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers 
to keep them from seeing the light of the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. How is he the image of God? In his humanity. When the Bible talks about Christ being the image of God, it is a declaration of his humanity. It is a connection to that great text at the very beginning of the whole story. Let us make man in our image. For what we proclaim, Paul goes on, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How do we see God in the face of Jesus Christ? How do we recognize the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He is the fulfillment of this promise, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. A little later in the story, in Genesis chapter 3, God makes another promise. This promise he makes to the serpent. This is what he says. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is often referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel. Though I would want to argue for that verse we read in chapter 1. But this is the first announcement of the gospel of the seed of the woman that will bruise the head of the serpent, that will put the serpent out of business that will end death and bring resurrection. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we read this, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy 
the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are, were subject to lifelong slavery. The fulfillment of this promise to bruise the head of the serpent is the fulfillment of our redemption who delivers us who are subject to the death that was the result of that serpent's work to redeem us. In 1 John verse, chapter 3, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The Lord Jesus Christ, in His resistance to the devil, in His victory over the temptation in the wilderness, and in His victory in His death and resurrection, has put to death, death. And so He is the fulfillment of this promise of God, this promise to bruise the head of the serpent. A little later in the book of Genesis, we come to the story of Abraham. And God makes a very big promise to Abraham. In fact, you can read the rest of the Bible, starting from Genesis chapter 12. The rest of the Bible is how does God keep the promise He made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? Now, you could go back to Genesis chapter 1 and read, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And you could say the rest of the Bible is the story of how God accomplishes that promise. And then when you get to chapter 12, you have another unfolding of promise where God says to Abraham, in your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Wow. I will surely bless you, he said to Abraham, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham believed God and received this promise in faith. And this offspring is a singular. <laughs> and Paul makes something out of that in the book of Galatians. He says the seed that God promised to Abraham is the man Jesus. And in his offspring, the man Jesus, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all shall all the nations be blessed. So when God made that promise to Abraham, God was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to Abraham. That's what this text clearly says. And so we Gentiles have received the blessing of God in union with Christ. 
the offspring of Abraham, the one who is the fulfillment of this very promise. Later in Galatians chapter 3, we read this in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The promises of the Spirit, which we'll read again in a moment, were all made to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, I will put my Spirit in you. And yet, here we find that this promise going back to Abraham, this promise that says all the nations will be blessed, extends the promise of the Spirit to you and to me, to every citizen of the body of Christ, to every believer. Later on in Galatians chapter 3, he says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave. Wait a second. There is neither Jew nor Greek. That's what we studied in Ephesians, where by the ministry of his cross, Christ makes one new man from two. And he utterly obliterates all the enmity between Israel and the Gentile nations and assembles us all his one people in Christ. The fulfillment of this promise to Abraham in you, all the nations will be blessed. It has been God's intention from the beginning to redeem humanity from every tongue and tribe and nation. You are all one, he goes on in Galatians, in Christ. And if you are Christ's, listen now, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs, according to promise. The promise God made to Abraham is delivered to you and to me in the person of Christ. The next promise is in the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we read this, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Well, that's the, that's the summary commandment, right? That he said at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the Lord, he says, he says here, so that the Lord will circumcise your heart. Now, this is in a context where he says, here's the law, here's the covenant, Israel, here's the covenant, and when you keep the covenant, God will bless you and you will prosper in the promised land. And when you fail to keep it, God will, the opposite will occur and you will experience this and this and this, which is all about people, other nations conquering and taking you and you're not living in prosperity in the land. And so you have in the history of Israel a lot, many cycles of this 
Faithfulness rewarded, unfaithfulness punished, disciplined. And then he says, right there in the very covenantal document that forms the nation of Israel, the book of Deuteronomy, he says, and in the end, and in the end, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. That's not something you can do for yourself. The heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. In Colossians chapter 2, we read this For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And the book of Colossians is addressed to Gentiles. So this circumcision of the heart is something that is performed in the life of all, each and every believer in Christ. It is the fulfillment of this promise in Christ. In Christ. And of course, we might ask the question, what on earth is circumcision for? And in the Old Covenant, it is simply the mark, the physical mark that claims a person to belong to God, to be a, one of His chosen ones. And so we are, have this connection with baptism in the New Testament, this ceremony in which we are marked as belonging to God and to the body of His people. a member of the covenant family of God. And this promise is made possible by the fullness of deity dwelling bodily in Christ. The next promise is made to David in 2 Samuel verse 7. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. God says to David, your throne shall be established forever. There is a throne that is named David. God's chosen king. The people chose a king, and God rejected that king and chose one of his own, David. And so Messiah is recognized in the rest of Jewish history to be the son of David, the rightful heir to his throne. And the promise to David made through the prophet, the promise is that is an eternal throne. 
In Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. I don't think we've seen those days yet. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. Not we are the Lord rewards our righteousness. And so Jeremiah repeats the promise that there is a a righteous branch, a son of David. That is a fulfillment of this promise made to David himself. In Isaiah chapter 9, we already read this verse this morning, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Eternal. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Who establishes the throne of David? God. Who seats Christ on the throne of David? God. In Luke chapter 1, the angel is Revealing the plan to Mary. (laughs) The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Now that's a quotation of the prophet. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary goes, oh yeah, that's what Isaiah said when she hears that. The fulfillment of the prophecy of the kingdom of God on the throne of David is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The man Jesus. The very first verse of Matthew, Matthew 1.1, says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is intentionally connecting the person of Jesus to these promises that God made to these ancient patriarchs. In Revelation chapter 11 This is what we read. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The 
promise of God is that in the kingdom of David, Christ, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, will repossess the government of men. The next promise is to the house of Israel in the book of Ezekiel, where he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. The Lord promises to give his people a new heart and to put his own spirit in them. And this will (laughs) change them so that they are changed from people who are resistant to the rule of God to people who love the rule of God and can't wait to obey his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The love comes before the commandment keeping. And it is, by the way, the result of his love poured out in us. In Jeremiah, we read this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. We're coming to the communion table this morning, and at that first communion table, we read in Luke chapter 22, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now there's no way for a group of 12 Jewish men and their rabbi to hear that sentence and not connect it with the promises of the new covenant in the Old Testament. Jesus says, here it is. It is now. This little ritual establishes the new covenant. And when we come to the table, we say, We are happy to be the recipients of this new covenant in Christ, which involves the outpouring of His Spirit into our very hearts so that we become transformed into His image. 
This is the fulfillment of that promise in Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. I would like to point out that that doesn't mean that teaching is not a good thing anymore, but you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. No person, no Jewish person could write or read that sentence without connecting it to that promise. In the Old Testament, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. In fact, I believe this is John's intention in using this idea. He's saying, look, the new covenant's here. It's been delivered in Jesus. In Romans chapter 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The new covenant is the covenant that is established once and for all by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His atonement for our sins. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And so we are joined to the people of God. And so the promise made to Abraham is extended to all the nations. Then we come to this promise made to everyone who believes. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. I will raise him up at the last day. In Isaiah 26, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So some people came to Jesus one day and said, well, you believe in the resurrection. Jesus' main reply to that is, I am the resurrection. Yes. It's promised in Isaiah. And what we're talking about here is dead bodies rising. In John chapter 6, this is the will of my Father, Jesus said, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Later on in that same chapter, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus is reiterating the promise of the resurrection. And Jesus, of course, is the leader in the actual realization of that promise in his own eternal resurrection. As Jesus was talking to Martha after Lazarus died, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus doesn't say, that's not what I meant. That is what he meant. He says, instead, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, 
Even if he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And in saying that, she demonstrates that she understands the connection between the Christ and the resurrection, that this is a personified promise, that this is a promise made to be delivered in a person. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection, and in the middle of that, we read this, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. In 1 Thessalonians, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. God with us, Emmanuel, the fulfillment of the promise. Therefore, he says, encourage one another with these words. In Second Peter, Peter writes the very opening of that book, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. His divine power. Wait a second. Whose divine power? Oh, well, it's the same divine power, God and Jesus, our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things has granted to us all things. You just need to dwell on that for a second. His divine power has granted. This is something that is accomplished. It is not something that might happen or could happen or will happen one day. It is something that has happened. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. He has granted to us His promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature so that the Likeness and image of God can be realized in you, in Him. You may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There's an interesting thing about the story, the Christmas, A Christmas Carol, Scrooge's first name. 
Scrooge's first name is barely mentioned in the story. You hear it, I think, like three times only. He's mostly just called Scrooge, which is not a nice thing to say about anyone. But he has a first name. His first name is Ebenezer. And I believe this is intentional on the part of Charles Dickens that this guy is named Ebenezer Scrooge. Do you know that the name Ebenezer comes from the Bible? And it comes from the first book of Samuel in the Bible. I'll tell you this. Here's the story. It's, first, it's only a few verses. I'll read you the whole story. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. Now what happened that day was some sort of uh, foreign attack on the nation of Israel that apparently they weren't ready for or contemplating because here's Samuel going about the business of making a sacrifice and suddenly they're under attack. And who is their defender? God. God. So the meaning of the name Ebenezer is it's it's a combination word eben which means stone hazar which is help it's a stone of help it's a marker of god's help and so he sets this thing up as like a monument and so we look at this monument and we go oh yeah god sure helped us that day there's the ebenezer and so scrooge has the first name Ebenezer, stone of help, a memorial stone. Christmas changes things. Christmas changes everything. The day that God, the eternal Son, became one of us is the most important thing that has ever happened. And Christ transforms us from Scrooges to Ebenezer's. From self-absorbed, self-serving, grasping to channels of His grace, to reflections of His image, to memorials of the powerful intervention of Christ. God establishes His people as an Ebenezer, as a memorial stone that commemorates the fulfillment of His promise in the man Jesus. This is something He did. To celebrate Christmas, to celebrate Christmas is to celebrate the fulfillment of all the promises of God in Christ. 
to celebrate Christmas is to come to the table of the Lord, to receive His help, His provision. Not to transform ourselves, but to be transformed by the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. To be transformed by the strengthening of His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. To be the recipient of His goodness, of His cheerful goodness, and of His great grace. So when we come to this table, we're not the providers. He is. And we are simply coming and saying, yes, I want to be in the new covenant people. I want to enjoy the fulfillment of all the promises of God in Jesus Christ. And that is what we do here today. Father, thank You for Your goodness and grace, for Your love, for this great faithfulness that You demonstrate to us in Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen.